The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 6th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing, the Joint Policing Committee in Dundalk was hearing last night about the ongoing problems associated with illegal and highly addictive drugs. Cocaine and heroin are widely available and as addicts struggle to afford to feed their habits, they fall into debt owing large amounts of money. The result is threats, intimidation, beating and petrol bombs. The amounts of money involved are so big that a feud between two rival gangs in Drogheda has led to individuals associated with the feud linked to three murders. The guns are being used in broad daylight and in very public places. In Drogheda there has been at least three attempted murders. There are questions about how local Gardaí are under-resourced but in Dundalk last night Gardaí said they can help call off the gangs when they come looking for thousands of euro owed to them for drugs. Councillor Rory Omuraku of Sinn Féin joins us now and a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, you were telling uh, of how one family paid off a debt of 40,000 euro. It's a, a similar story it would seem across the county. We've heard uh, of debts of that scale elsewhere and them being paid off. How does somebody run up a, a bill of 40,000 euro? 40,000 is a huge bill, obviously. We're dealing with, we've had multiple people in in relation to drug uh, debt intimidation, and the figures are generally around 8, 10, 12,000. But an awful lot of times these figures jump. You hear of drug dealers selling a debt to someone else, and here it jumps by half the value or possibly the whole value. I heard a particular case where this happened, the debt ended up in around the high 20,000s, and literally there was a payoff. So, on some level, and again, mm. sometimes these debts are run up by individuals who have difficulties, who are vulnerable, mm. who find themselves in trouble. They're not without sin in this situation sometimes. Um, but, but, but the girl in this uh, particular instance, and obviously I don't want you to identify them or anything like that, uh, but she owed €40,000. Uh, how much... Uh, did she actually owe, uh, if you were to calculate the cost of the drugs that was given to her? See, in relation to that particular case, Mm. that was the case that came to us sort of indirectly. It was a Sinn Féin councillor dealing with an issue, and he discovered that a father in this case had paid off 40 grand, and it was because his daughter was um, facing intimidation and what have you. Now, sometimes these deaths don't relate specifically to that person. It can be them, it can be their partner, Mm. something like that. In most cases, it is a case that people get it, get on, get drugs on tick, and um, sometimes. Yeah, but that's what I'm trying to understand. I mean, I, I, I imagine they don't give out for. I think in, the, in that particular case, I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Want, but 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 in one of the other cases that you're talking about, let's say somebody owes ten thousand, how, how much would they have got on tick? Um, well, here we have a case that's come to us where, mm. uh, and this is sometimes how it's dealt with the family. It's almost like they start a drip drip, and if the tap starts running, then you know what. The system is working. And the family initially were told oh, that the chap owed, it was in around 1,000, so there was payoffs of 800 and, and about 1,500. You ended up on a figure of about 3,700 that was paid over a six-month period. Right, so how is, the, how is the interest calculated? 
oh, I'd say it's not with any calculator. Mm. Uh, I heard of a case that we dealt with before where it literally doubled when it was sold from one person to another. And literally the drug dealer then um, attacked the house and forced the people to pay. The people at that time had the means to pay it, so they paid it. But another debt was run up again by the mm. same son, you know what I mean? And they, obviously a drug gang, a separate one, believed that they would get it paid, but the, the resources didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And the house was attacked, and we're very lucky that somebody in that particular instance... Yeah, so they weren't killed, or the house burned to the ground, for that matter. Let's uh, hear what uh, the Gardaí had uh, to say about this. Uh, Chief Superintendent uh, Christy Mangan uh, was uh, speaking to LMFM News. There are drugs units in Dundalk, Trotta and RD, and they have made a considerable impact so far in relation to Section 3 seizures and also Section 15 seizures. And there has been some considerable noteworthy uh, seizures of control drugs in the division but we have a lot more work to do a huge amount of work to, to be done particularly in our towns in order to make sure that our drug dealers don't gain control or continue to intimidate people and we have a specific plan in place in t- how to deal with, with these people. Alright and in terms of uh, trying to deal with these people he's asking people who are being uh, knocked on who are being called on uh, and by these gangs who are demanding money to come forward to the Gardaí. Well, we're certainly um, impressing upon people and families in particular that they would contact us, let us know what's happening, let us know about the, the circumstances behind the threats I'm not asking people to come in and make statements. I'm asking people to make contact with us uh, so that we in Angarshikana can put plans in place in order to help all families who are the subject of drug intimidation in the Loud Garda Division. Rory O'Murko, is that realistic? I mean, if I owe somebody €40,000 uh, who is a member of one of these gangs and I go to the Gardaí, are they not going to burn my house down if they don't kill me? Well, the reality is when one of these gangs come for you, they're generally threatening to do that anyway. Mm. Whether you go to the guards or not... Yeah, but if I can find the €40,000, wouldn't it be better just to deal with it? Well, the fact is, the way I see it is, and I'm here, the Chief Super used the term himself, you switch on the tap and it's always going to keep running. Someone's going to realise that here on some level this is nearly a better... this is a better business model almost than the drug dealing itself... What the guards have said is that they will be as protective of whatever, of people's anonymity and information. But in an awful lot of cases, they don't even have the information that these people are engaging in this. And on some level, like I said earlier, this particular crime, intimidation and whatever is is a lot more dangerous sometimes than the actual drug dealing. And people, for a million reasons, obviously you're dealing with people across multiple social classes. It's impacting on everybody. And literally, they're afraid they feel a certain stigma, they don't realise how the community will see them, and it can happen to any of us. But the thing is, you need to go see in cases where we have brought this to the guards, or the people have gone directly to the guards, the guards have met, they have offered an element of protection, whether that's greater amount of patrols, whether that's also, they will be aware that if anything is to happen, they will highlight these particular addresses and houses. And it also means that they can pinpoint and they can put pressure on particular drug dealers. Because obviously, 
a threat to life is about as dangerous a thing as they as they have to deal with. Yeah, but it's a roundabout way of trying to deal with it, isn't it? Uh, the uh, 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 firefighting approach that the Gardaí are taking, that it's after the event, uh, that if uh, they were to get on top of uh, the drugs problem, that you wouldn't find yourself in this situation. Because if you go to the Gardaí and say, I owe 5,000 euro or 40,000 or 50,000 euro, as we've heard before, uh, to a drug dealer, well, then you've obviously got an addiction problem You've been buying drugs illegally, using drugs illegally. Undoubtedly, you're still addicted and you're going to want more drugs even after the debt is paid off or whatever the case may be. And uh, the Gardaí uh, will be able to do little in terms of protecting you if that is the case. But in an awful lot of these cases, who's coming under this, these threats and this intimidation are families. Families that didn't run off these debts. Mm. They're literally, it's on the basis of someone being related to them. And what happens if you move somebody out of the area? If you move somebody over to England or something like that, uh, will they still come after you? Well, in some of these cases, yes. But we've seen that the, the threats come directly to the family. That on some level, they forget about the person who ran off the debt because they believe, like I said earlier, that the tap is the family, whether it's the mother, father, or, or whoever else. If they think they have money, obviously, they're even a, a better target. Um, so what we need to do is ensure, first of all, that the Gardaí get this information, that they're aware of who these people are, because you're dealing with some of the most dangerous gangs going, that families can be given whatever supports and whatever protection are there and available. Of course, we've always called for greater resources for the guards. And while we welcome the fact that in Dundalk, we now have a drugs unit with three people, but obviously we would like to see a hell of a lot more resources because you're dealing with an absolutely huge problem. We'd also like to highlight the fact that people who are taking drugs recreationally, who don't believe they're causing any problem for anybody, who might know the drug dealer, somebody they met at college, and they all think this is nice and clean and well removed, but they're putting money into these drugs gangs who are then causing this terror and intimidation to families and to individuals across this county and across this island. Rory Amuraku, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Rory is a Sinn Féin councillor based in Dundalk and Louth County Council. Now let's talk about uh, the three letter bombs in London yesterday with Cormac O'Keefe, who's a security correspondent with uh, the Irish Examiner. Back to the bad old days, it would seem, Cormac. Uh, sorry, the, the line just broke up there, sorry. I beg your pardon. I say back to the bad old days uh, with uh, reports of letter bombs in London. Three uh, particular uh, incidents yesterday at Heathrow, at London City Airport and at Waterloo uh, train station. One of uh, these devices actually ignited. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's particularly serious uh, from from the Gardaí's point of view to have three uh, parcel bombs or incendiary uh, uh, devices posted over from this country to the capital of another country. Um, as regards the, the motive behind it, which you were, might have been hinting at there, we don't know yet. I mean, obviously, the the immediate speculation and the obvious speculation is that this could be linked to dissident Republicans, and that will feature highly in, in Garda uh, inquiries here, but at this stage we, we simply don't know. Um, I know the London Met was quoted yesterday saying they were keeping an open mind on, on the matter. Obviously the three were linked. Uh, they were sent from Ireland. Um, apart from that, we have at the moment little else to go on. So whether it's an individual or individuals with a particular grievance of some, some sort, whether it's tied in with Brexit, whether it's tied in with the dissidents, whether it's possibly tied in with, you know, international terrorism. All these are 
I suppose possible theories at the moment, but other than that, we are at the beginning of what could be a long investigation. And uh, despite uh, these devices uh, being uh, sent to addresses in London, as you reported this morning, it's resulted in a high-level security operation uh, with Gardaí trying to track down who sent the explosives from Ireland. Uh, it's believed that the three parcels came from Ireland uh, uh, with posts that were issued by Unpost for St. Valentine's Day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are, there are Irish postmarks on it. Um, you know, there's some return addresses on it. One, one definitely says Bus Air in Dublin, but, you know, that is, is most likely a, a ruse or just a generic address of some sort that they might have used, you know. Um, mm. It's impossible to know uh, where the individuals uh, live based on, even if they are able to identify what sorting office or p- post office these packages were sent from, that is a starting point because obviously someone could travel some distance to post uh, parcels like this. So, you know, the the, the Gardaí have a have a, a a difficult, I suppose, road ahead in trying to pinpoint uh, who might be behind us. The other obvious source of information is maybe some DNA could be gleaned from the either the envelopes or uh, or the the, par- the parcels they were they were contained in from Britain if they were able to get some DNA samples if those DNA samples match records that we have here that might be that would obviously give them something to go on fingerprints possibly but obviously many people can handle the parcel so that could be difficult um, we are at the early stages of this so unless there is some evidence that the British police are able to get or uh, Gardaí possibly have some suspects in mind maybe if it is linked to dissidents that that will give them a starting point um but it's it's early days yet yeah, and it could be islamic terrorists based in Ireland that have sent these devices but the real fear is uh, that it is uh, the work of uh, the new IRA of course that's, that is the real fear and it is i suppose the, the first suspicion that you would have i mean the new IRA have been uh, stepping up their activities and indeed dissidents uh, more generally. We had the car bomb attack in, in Derry. We had, we've had two uh, significant enough fines on the border in Loud um, um, in February, at the beginning and the end of February. So their and intelligence indicates that. Uh, you know, senior people from the Guard Commissioner down have warned that Brexit and particularly a hard border will, will be a mm. rallying call for, for dissident groups. So that is... Listen, that's, that's the obvious line of yep. inquiry, mm-hmm. but it may not be that, but uh, they'll definitely be looking. Uh, and the idea, Cormac, as well, that there were three devices sent to three addresses mm-hmm. on the same day, a coordinated uh, yeah. attack, all, all the more concerning. And uh, I, I gather there is further concern that there might be more devices uh, already on the way to other addresses. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, we've seen throughout Europe when there is an attack, I mean, what most concerns counter-terrorism and police uh, generally over it is that there's another one coming because that's the way it has, it has often um, happened that it's so in complete chaos when there's one incident there's another incident so yeah the fact that this was coordinated not any individual would any ordinary individual would be behind this because it takes a degree of planning at least and they were very specific addresses they were sent to so they obviously knew where they were sending mm. them to uh, they've probably taken some countermeasures, you would imagine, to hide or to cover their tracks. So, you know, it, this is, it obviously heightens tensions um, anyway. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, it may take time to identify who's behind it, but it does it does heighten tensions generally around the whole issue of the Brexit. And, uh, uh, and what, what, what do you know about these devices, uh, Cormac? Uh, are, are they uh, a serious uh, threat? Uh, they're fire bombs as such, aren't they? That they will... Yeah, they, they appear to ignite uh, yeah. rather than explode. So, you know, I'm not an expert. Mm. In terms of their capacity to injure, it may be... It may be limited to the person who's opening it, but that's obviously no consolation to the person who's opening it. Um, you know, you could cause obviously significant injury if, if you know, or, or maiming. Who, who knows what uh, damage they could cause? I mean, it could be unknown even to the person sending it exactly the level of damage they might cause. Um, from what little I, I know, they're probably rudimentary enough and maybe they're relatively easy enough to gather together, but it, it would still require a level of planning and determination uh, to do something like this. All right, look, uh, we are very appreciative of your time and thank you for joining us this morning. Cormac O'Keefe is a security correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Michael Reed on LMFM. Today, Ash Wednesday, is, as traditionally the case, National Non-Smoking Day. It's a day that smokers are are encouraged to quit or encouraged to consider quitting, and uh, the government is encouraged to help smokers help quit. We're joined by Chris Macy, Head of Advocacy with the Irish Heart Foundation. Good morning to you, Chris, and thanks for joining us. Uh, You say that if the state was to spend enough money in order to help smokers quit... Uh, that it would be uh, 140 times more than it, it, that it is, uh, 140 times more expensive now while people continue to smoke than it would be to help them to quit. That's right, Michael. The, the, the figures here, are, they're, they're crazy. They make no sense. But first of all, we've, we've nearly 6,000 deaths a year uh, from smoking-related illness in this country, and yet we're only spending 11.8 million euros trying to help uh, smokers quit. That's a lot um, of money, though, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not a lot of money compared to the, the tax take from additional tax that people are paying of 1.4 billion euros. And it's also not a lot of money compared to the, the total cost to the state of smoking, which is one, over 1. 1.6 uh, billion. So it's 140 times more uh, we're spending on, on dealing with the effects of smoking than we're spending on helping smokers to quit. You know, the, the, mm. like the human, the, the human thing here is, it speaks for itself, but even the economic case, uh, it, it's a, it is a no brainer. You know, it makes no sense that uh, rather than helping smokers to quit, it's only after smokers have a stroke or a heart attack or develop cancer or a a host of other serious Mm. illnesses that the state gets properly involved in in assisting them. And that's what the tax pays for, isn't it? Or I mean, at least that's what we are told, that cigarettes are are so expensive uh, because of uh, the cost of dealing with the health consequences. And most of what you pay for a packet of cigarettes goes to the government. That's right, but there's uh, absolutely true. But the, the, there's conclusive evidence that uh, ad campaigns, quit campaigns, support services such as cessation clinics, uh, quit lines, and medications work in helping people quit. So if we didn't have such patchy services in this regard around the country, if we invested a bit more in it, we'd actually save the state money, and more importantly, uh, we'd save uh, or certainly reduce uh, this death toll, which is it's like a jumbo jet crash uh, a month in Ireland. You know of our our friends, our family and our our neighbours who are dying from uh, tobacco-related illness, you know, they need a bit more help. Um, You know, it's clear we're not doing enough for smokers. Uh, 80% want to quit, uh, many of whom are are desperate to quit. And, you know, 
if we're going to place this mm. large additional tax burden on them, at least we could pay a little bit more to helping them uh, to, 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 to get off these, um, you know, uh, um, uh, products. That is it, is it that they can't to afford to uh, pay for these products or is it that we need to convince them to quit? Uh, because if 80% of smokers say that they want to quit, why don't they just do it? Well, um, you know, tobacco is uh, one of the most addictive um, uh, substances on the planet, uh, you know, and uh, it, it, I've been through it myself. It's, it's very, very hard to quit. It's very hard to even get yourself to the position where you're, you're you know, because you're so addicted to this substance that, that it's very hard to get to the point where you think you can do it. So you will actually try. And that whole motivational area is very important. Uh, you know, we know it takes a, a, an average of four or five attempts for people uh, to get to get off cigarettes so you know so it, it's not easy and people need that bit of help that's all mm. that's all we're saying a little bit of investment to help people uh, what could be wrong with that especially when you know the tax take is so big and you know in this country we we have um a tobacco free ireland policy where we're supposed to get tobacco tax down uh, or sorry um uh, to, uh, uh, smoking rates down to five percent by 2025 it's it's 20 percent now mm. and yet the state is sort of hooked, if you like, on the uh, on the proceeds of this tax. This 1.4 billion is um, important to the state in the running of the country, and yeah, we've got to we've got to change that. We've got to move uh, tax into into different areas. You know, by reducing the number of smokers, reducing the tax take. So you know, the state has to accept that this 1.4 billion shouldn't be here forever if its uh, if its own policy actually works. Okay, this is one of uh, the most stressful conversations that any smoker could listen to. And if I'm not mistaken, there's smokers listening to us now who want to quit, heard this conversation start, started to feel stress and lit a cigarette. Uh, before you leave us, Chris, maybe you'd like to speak to them. Um, well, I suppose the, the most important thing is, you know, uh, think of your health, think of your families. After 20 minutes uh, of, of having your last cigarette, your, your blood pressure, your pulse rate start to return to normal. After eight hours, the oxygen levels in your blood start to return to normal. And after 24 hours, poisonous carbon monoxide is eliminated from the body. You know, th- these um, it, this is worth it. You know, it's hard, but it's worth it. Uh, you know, get your head right. You know, ring the national quit line if you need some help. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the rewards are huge in terms of your health and your, you know, continued quality of life into older age. OK, well, look, thank you for joining us uh, this Ash Wednesday National No Smoking Day. Chris Macy, Head of Advocacy with the Irish Heart Foundation. Now it is Wednesday morning, meaning that uh, the local newspapers are in your shops. Marie Kearns is in studio and you've got the front pages in front of you. I sure do, Michael. Lots of reading in them. First to the Dundalk Democrat. And sadly, this is a story, Michael, we are all too familiar with. Sheep killing out of hand is the headline of the front page story as Matthew McGreehan, the loud IFA Rural Development Chairman, hits out at irresponsible pet owners who dogs have killed a massive 60 sheep in the Wee County over the last two months. And he goes on to say the farmers are well within their rights to shoot any rogue dogs on their land which could potentially harm their sheep. Absolutely, and he's been saying that to us for months on end uh, because it's an ongoing problem, but it it seems as though those calls are not being heeded uh, and uh, people uh, do not believe uh, that they have a responsibility to keep their dogs under control, or or at least not to the extent that they do, 
because this continues to be a problem. Front page of the Democrat today, and I did notice that it was covered on RTE uh, during the week as well. We stay in Dundalk, and the leader leads with uh, the Scouting Ireland story that has dominated a lot of the national media. That's right, and they have a local angle on it, which is that scouts are, scouts locally are getting backing from parents. That's the lead story in the leader. Uh, Jerry Byrne, who's a leader with St. Patrick's Scout Group in Dundalk, says that he and his colleagues have received nothing but support from parents in the wake of the scandal which has cast a shadow over the organisation nationwide. Mr Byrne said he was shocked and saddened by the allegations of abuse which have emerged but insists that he believes current safeguarding procedures are stringent and fully protective of children. Alright, we're talking today about letter bombs in London. Let's remember 1975 in Dundalk and a, a very serious loyalist bomb attack on Kay's Tavern. That's right and it features an interview with Dundalk native Peter O'Connor who has a accused the state of abandoning the victims of Dun- the Dundalk, Dublin and Monaghan bombings. The well-known musician who sustained serious injuries in that blast in 1975 claims that he was never offered any help or support by the Irish government after the bombing, which left two dead and 20 injured. He was 19 years old at the time, a student, when he was caught up in the attack and he set to tell the harrowing story of the bomb and how he cradled one of the two men killed in the explosion in Blood Red Lines on Friday night, Michael, in the Tawn Arts Centre. All right, that's the front page story of the Argus in Dundalk. The Drogheda leader leads with uh, the Taoiseach's visit to the town. Yes, that's right, Michael. The leader had an interview with the Taoiseach, a couple of minutes with him, when he confirmed that he supports city status for Drogheda, but, and it's a bit big but, Michael, it will mean no town council and that it will become part of a constituency of the greater city of Drogheda, Dundalk and Uri. That's the, that this M1 corridor that's being promoted. Ian Waters is reporting that the Taoiseach proposes that Drogheda will have city status in name only and the power will remain in the council in Dundalk. Alright, well that is confusing in the extreme. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means at all. Uh, let's say in Drogheda, the Drogheda Independent uh, talking about money. Yes, a lot of lot of joy in the front page of the Drogheda Independent and this focuses on the winning 2.5 million lotto ticket that was sold at Madden's Centre Supermarket in Termenfecken. Owner Ray Mar- Mar- Madden telling the paper that the village was buzzing with the news and it's International Women's Day on Friday and inside there's a really good two-page special by Alison Common which features some really good interesting interviews, Michael, with various local women who speak about the importance of the day to them. So that's really worth a read. All right, uh, and uh, some... Uh, problems in uh, terms of uh, development making yes. for the front page of the Mead Chronicle. Yes, the Chronicle is reporting today that a potential 2,000 jobs in Navin are at risk and why you might ask. Well, according to Noel Moran, the CEO of Prepaid Financial Services, which announced 50 new jobs in a major expansion in Navin last week, Further expansion at the Molly site in Navin, which it's hoped to transform into a financial services centre, could come to a halt depending on archaeological reports. He says if the report shows various walls from the old medieval abbey have to be preserved, then it will mean the end of the project and it will continue to be used as a drug-taking site in Navin and will probably never be developed by anyone. He told the Chronicle, I hope this is not the outcome and we can continue to create more jobs locally, but there 
there is so much red tape for an, enter- an entrepreneur trying to move forward with a project like this, you would lose the will to live during the process. I suppose you would if you were an entrepreneur. I suppose uh, there's no explanation as to why that red tape is there or what they're trying to protect, no? Well, it's it's obviously a heritage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll leave it there. People might want to talk to us about some of uh, those stories, some very interesting stories, actually, on the front of uh, the papers this week and uh, a broad range of stories for that matter. If you do want to make comment on them, you can ring Marie now and you'll be back into us in a few indeed. minutes' time with some of those comments or, for that matter, if people want to make comment on something else you've been hearing or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we spoke yesterday about a report published by St. Vincent of DePaul called Working Parenting and Struggling, which has found that parents, single parents who are in work are in poverty uh, and that the rates are some of the highest in Europe, the worst in Europe, according to St. Vincent de Paul, and uh, that uh, the rate has more than doubled in uh, the course of five years. One in five lone parents in poverty in 2017 compared to 2012's figure of one in 11. High housing costs, childcare costs and low levels of income compound the problem. Let's uh, talk about this now with uh, the single parents acting for the rights of our kids group and Louise Bayliss is a spokesperson for Spark. Good morning to you Louise and thanks for joining us. Uh, You say that the findings in the Vincent de Paul report come as no surprise to you. Absolutely no surprise. It was completely predictable for you know you could and one of the things it says there it's one in five working lone parents so it's not just one in five lone parents it's one in five parents who are working and in work poverty and it was all predictable. We said at the time that cutting the income of working loan parents was going to have a detrimental effect unless something else improved. And in that time, we were promised that we would get affordable childcare to offset the losses in our income. The affordable childcare still has not come. And in the meantime, we have a housing crisis that has gotten worse and, and rent spiralling out of costs. And it, it, it was completely predictable and exactly what we forecast and every other expert in the field forecast. And because 90% of lone parents are, are women, you believe uh, that uh, this is gendered policies punishing women who parent alone? It's absolutely a gendered issue. 98% of lone parents in receipt of one parent family allowance are women. There has never been a more gendered cut against the poorest group of, in women. And, and, and that's, that, that has to be seen as a female issue. Um, I don't believe it was if it was men involved in it, that there would be 98%, there would be an outcry. Um, lone parents are definitely considered the low-lying fruit. And that's why even when we set up Spark, we called it Acting for the Rights of Children. Ireland has a history of not supporting single mothers or lone parents or women who are divorced or separated. Away. We have a history of it. So we really try to appeal that, yes, you may think we don't deserve support, but our children certainly do deserve support. Uh, and we believe we deserve support too. We're like, to get general public support, we, we try to come at it from the point of view of children. Uh, and uh, as you say, uh, this uh, report or the findings in this report uh, is uh, not something uh, that comes as a surprise. It's what you would have expected, uh, that you believe all the experts in uh, the field uh, are aware of uh, this problem, that it's an ongoing problem. But you also believe that the government is ignoring the research. Well, uh, to be fair, Regina Doherty, the minister, has met with us and she has tinkered around and she has made slight 
improvements. You know, she's increased the qualified child increase, she's increased the, increased the income disregard, but the overall effects of what happened in, in Budget 2012 that was enforced in 2015 has not been reversed, and that is causing our families to suffer. The government's own report that they commissioned, and the Indicon report, show that between 2013 and 2016, the Exchequer saved £261 million from the changes made to loan parent cuts. So that's, you know, about, about 80,000, 80 million a year. That 80 million is being, is being carried by people who can't afford to cut that cut. OK. Is it that bad? Uh, well, uh, the Taoiseach uh, says uh, that he doesn't accept uh, the report from St. Vincent de Paul. We'll hear a little bit of what Leo Vratker had to say in the doll yesterday. Uh, in terms of the report issued today, and I have immense respect for the St. Vincent de Paul and worked with them uh, on many occasions, particularly when I was Minister for Social Protection, uh, but I don't think it tells the full picture. So I did ask this morning for the statistics from the Central Statistics Office, uh, the CSO, which actually collects the official statistics on poverty in Ireland. And what they show is that the consistency poverty rate, that's the official measure of poverty in Ireland, uh, did jump a lot between 2012 and 2013. It jumped from 18.4% to 26.3%. So that was in 2013. But every year since 2013, for each of the past four years, consistent poverty and deprivation among lone parents has actually gone down. Fell to 23.1% in 2014. Uh, a, a slight increase, 239 after that, 232 after that, and 20.7 in 2017. So the figures that we have, most recent year that we have is 2017, uh, are down uh, on 2013. And that demonstrates that the policies that we've been implementing, helping people get back to work, helping people into education, improving welfare, reducing the cost of childcare, are working. And I would predict that when we see the figures for 2018, they'll improve again. That's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. What do you make of that, Louise? Well, he's being very selective with his figures. He is right, the figures of the consistent poverty rate have gone down back to 20.7. Well, he hasn't said that for for the equivalent two-parent family, we are now five times more likely to live in poverty. It's gone down to 4%, so the gap between one-parent families and two-parent families has gotten much higher. He's also incorrect. He's now using the figure that 20.7 is for all known parents. What this report has specified is it's targeting what happened to lone parents who were working. And the, the poverty rate in lone parents who have working has doubled. And if the, his, if the policies were designed to actually activate lone parents and get them into work, his actual point is, is completely invalid because what has actually happened is that lone parents now, the poverty has now increased in working lone parents. Yes, it has come down overall slightly, still five times higher than the general population. Mm. It has come down slightly. But the reality is for the lone parents who are working, their poverty has increased. So if the activation policy is mm. to help lone parents get out of poverty through work. Attacking the very ones who are doing that makes absolutely no sense and gives no route out of poverty for those who aren't working. Okay, but even if you accept what the Taoiseach said, uh, on the face of what he said, it would seem as though he is telling us that uh, there is one in five lone parents who are in consistent poverty or deprivation and that the government is doing a good job. One in five. That's incredible. One in five. Yeah, and and, and in fairness, the, the St. Vincent de Paul report is saying that one in five lone parents are in poverty. So that, they're not arguing with that. But the difference mm. is, back what, what, what the St. Vincent de Paul report is saying, back in 2012, before the activation measures came into place, 
lone parents who were working, it was only one in 11. Not that that's great, mm. but only one in 11 who were working but sure, do you hear were in the, poverty. But, but do you so hear now, the point I'm making, Louise? The, the, yeah. the, the Taoiseach seems to be telling us that the government Proud. is doing a good job through all the measures uh, that uh, they're taking, getting people back into education, getting people back to work, improving childcare. All these things the government uh, are, are doing has resulted in this good job, which means that just one in five just one in five lone parents yeah. are in consistent poverty and living in deprivation. It's yeah. an incredibly bad claim, isn't it? it it's, a, it's an incredibly bad claim and it's incredibly bad to use the overall lone parent population and compare it to an in-work population poverty. And, you know, it's wrong in all levels that, yeah. the, that anybody, that one in five is the statistic for one in five of those children are living in poverty. I mean, even the government's own reports, they talk about um, indications of poverty um, and they showed before the changes, that, which is quite shocking, that 49% of lone parents couldn't afford two pairs of strong shoes. And that's increased to 60% of lone parents can't afford two pairs of shoes. I mean, that's the level of poverty we're talking about. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Louise, thank you for joining us today. Louise Bayliss is a spokesperson for Spark. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns is back with us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning, Marie. Good morning again, Michael. Uh, We had a caller from a listener who didn't want to give his name, says, I'm listening to your programme about drugs and there's been a lot of talk about drugs over the last few weeks. What I want to make the phone call about is to appeal to ordinary people that have uh, information to encourage them to let the Gardaí have it now, not in 10 years' time. Put pen to paper, put what you have down on a sheet of paper and send it into the Gardaí. You don't have to disclose who you are. Today is Ash Wednesday. Instead of giving up something, maybe make uh, it uh, an ambition to do that today Mm -hmm. and you'll have a clear conscience because of it. Okay. Susan phoned in and Susan was also listening to the conversation at the top of the show this morning about drugs and she wonders is it not time for secondary schools to perhaps take some sort of lead and really push to get the message across to young people about drugs. Susan says that she is a parent of four children and it's a huge concern for parents and she says that really there needs to be more education and you need to put the fear of God into young people to stay clear of drugs. She's suggesting getting former addicts maybe to come into the schools and talk about their experiences, maybe those who spend time in prison for supplying drugs and have now reformed to get them into schools. She says they have mental health weeks mm. in many schools. Maybe now they should also have a week highlighting the dangers of drugs and it might mm. help to keep our teenagers away from them. Maybe so. It might make it more attractive as well because uh, all of us young people in particular like a little bit of uh, danger and uh, there's the temptation of uh, the apple and all that sort of stuff uh, and mm. uh, that probably makes for one of the arguments which is to legalise all of these drugs. You make it cheaper so people don't run up debts. Uh, you take out the criminality uh, because mm. uh, there isn't uh, that market available to you uh, and uh, as a, a result of all of that uh, you make it unattractive because it becomes something that uh, is for people who are addicted to avail of rather than it being a 
cool recreational thing. Martina phoned in just to say that her heart goes out to any parent who is caught up in something like this through no fault of your own. You bring up your children as best you can and when they bring trouble to your door you try and do your best to help them but to hear of the amounts of money the parents have been asked to pay out and are being intimidated into doing so it really is horrifying. All right, we're going to hear a little bit about uh, Trocra's Lenten appeal. Uh, This is uh, to help people all over the world. A lot of people will be familiar with this and how it usually begins on Ash Wednesday. A million Trocra boxes are being distributed nationwide this week and this year Trocra is highlighting the stories of three young girls from Guatemala, Uganda and Syria who have each lost their homes and their land. As everyone knows today is Ash Wednesday which is traditionally the day on which Trocra launches its Lenten campaign. The Lenten campaign is Trocra's largest annual fundraiser and it is responsible for bringing in the money that allows us to help up to 2.8 million people every year. We're extremely appreciative of all the small gestures of generosity that happen during Lent. Every 20 cents or 50 cents that someone puts in a Trocra box or donates even online makes a huge difference to the lives of thousands and thousands of people in the countries which we support. That's uh, the Chief Executive of uh, Trocra, Quiva Debarra, appealing for support for the campaign to help people uh, across uh, the world. I just wanted to mention something else as well, Marie, because uh, we were talking about the nurses' uh, dispute with Paul Bell of the SIP2 trade union earlier in the week and we've heard from the INMO since uh, because it's the INMO members who went on strike. Almost 40,000 nurses uh, were off of the job in their pay claim which they say will help with the recruitment and retention of nurses but uh, during uh, the conversation uh, the INMO said uh, that it was mentioned uh, that younger nurses would end up paying for the deal uh, and this was by way of skipping the second increment uh, but they want to point out that by skipping the second increment it means uh, that uh, they will instead go straight to the third increment and uh, that will mean an increase of them and that when they go on to the third increment uh, that their pay will actually increase by a amount of €3,635. More comments there that uh, have been coming to you this morning. Yes indeed. Uh, Tom from Dundalk says in relation to the letter bombs that were sent from Ireland to the UK that hopefully it won't be the start of a new reign of terror and that hopefully the Gardaí can track and hunt down those responsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margaret says, Michael, we don't know who sent those packages, no. so we shouldn't really be pointing the finger because it could be anybody at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Claire phoned in and says that when she heard about the su- uh, suspicious packages, it just brought her back to the days of the troubles and she really worries that if there's a hard Brexit this is what is going to be ahead for all of us. Yeah, well, it really is depressing to think uh, of uh, returning uh, to the bad old days of uh, the Troubles. Uh, Let's think uh, for a moment about something uh, a little bit less depressing uh, and uh, something a little bit more interesting and fun like going to a show. Now if uh, you are going to a show and you're looking to buy tickets for a show if uh, you look it up on the internet uh, you may very well come across a ticket agent called Viagogo. Uh, The reason I mention this is that we are going to be running a feature in uh, the coming days about uh, the way Viagogo operates and its practices which have been the subject of of some criticism. And if you want to 
talk to us about your experience with Viagogo. We would like to hear from you. The UK's digital minister, Margot James, is one of the people who is critical of how Viagogo operates. And last May, she spoke to BBC Radio saying that if you had to use a reselling site, that there's four of these sites available to you. Three of the big four um, secondary ticketing sites have said that they will comply. And the fourth, Viagogo, as you say, um, have not agreed to comply. And I think um, if there's one message I could get across to your listeners here this morning, it is that there are, you know, there are four big choices. When you can't get a ticket for an event from the primary seller and you've got to go to a secondary site, there are four choices. Just don't choose Viagogo. They are the worst. Don't choose Viagogo. That's uh, the UK's Digital Minister, Margot James, speaking to the BBC in May. If that reflects your experience or not, uh, do please make contact with us. As I say, we'll be running a feature on how Viagogo does its business and how it operates as a company in the coming days. As usual, you're welcome to get in touch with us uh, by phone, text, email, whatever the case may be. Okay, if I can go back to Padraig from Navin, who was in touch uh, following our newspaper review. He's from Navin and he says that he hopes that these potential 2,000 jobs in Navin aren't lost. He says that it would be a huge boost to the town because what's trying to be done is to build a financial centre hub in Navin, which would mean that people could work at home instead of having to travel to Dublin. Okay. Listening to Peter Fitzpatrick interview yesterday hmm. was Madeline and she says fair play to him but I don't think the taxpayer should be funding the gym for TDs. I think they should pay a big membership fee to cover the costs. Maybe if they had to pay for it themselves Michael mm-hmm. they would use it Maybe more. They would, yeah. So sometimes mm-hmm. when you get something for free you don't appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Would there be any membership fees paid to the gym if nobody uses it? I suppose that's uh, the other argument and that if you make it available at least there's some hope Uh, But Peter Fitzpatrick did like the idea that people would pay membership fees. He absolutely Mm -hmm. did, yes. Linda was in touch following our discussion in relation to an exemption for banned drink drivers so they could drive to and from work. She says she knows what it feels like to have family members killed by a drunk driver. And if you are banned from driving, for whatever reason, it's because you put someone else's life in danger. Mm. Niall says they broke the law, live with the consequences. I actually laughed when I read this. Mm-hmm. Uh, another listener says they should not be allowed any exemption if they valued their license they wouldn't drink and drive in the first place let them get a lift to work or better still walk Alright uh, and this uh, goes back to what Michael Healy Ray That's right. uh, had uh, suggested in his parliamentary question he spoke to us about it on the programme yesterday mm. uh, but it wasn't just uh, an idea that he pulled out of uh, the sky uh, he was saying that it was based on right. a model uh, that is in place in mm, New Zealand. Yes. Stephen says yes and the next thing we'll be letting murderers out to go to work if they promise not to do it again. Oh God. Mm. I hope not. Mm. John from Trim finally was listening to your interview with Luke Ming Flanagan and is wondering what planet he's living in. He says we're whinging and crying in Ireland about not being able to afford so many things including building a children's hospital. But he's talking about our country spending billions on defence when we can't even pay our own soldiers wages. Mm. Okay. Well I think actually what he was saying was the opposite. (laughs) He was saying that we shouldn't be. uh, That uh, because of PESCO we have to increase our spending on defence 
defence and he's concerned about where Europe is taking Ireland and all of the countries in terms of uh, defence and uh, the potential to establish a European army. But John's saying, how could we afford it anyway? Well, I think Ming would uh, agree with that. Yes. Uh, all right. Thanks, John. Thanks, everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. And our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Monser, as you heard on LMFM's do yesterday, is uh, concerned about uh, the retirement of uh, the community welfare officer for RD and uh, Dunleer and how the post remains vacant and joins us on the line now. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, what does the Community Welfare Officer do to begin with? Well, firstly, it provides services for um, people that would be in serious difficulties, you know, crisis situations, people that have no money or waiting on payments, payments that haven't come through, that sort of thing. You know, that um, it's a valuable service that people, the first port of call is to go to their Community Welfare Officer, um, even in relation to, say, um, housing matters if they haven't, um, you know, if they're sourcing rented accommodation and they're unhappy and they haven't, the, um, they can't make up the difference or, you know, yeah. they haven't enough for the deposit, all that sort of thing. But primarily in relation to if they're waiting on payments, their payments haven't been true, come through or their payments have been stopped, that sort of crisis situation. Right, so if uh, they can't pay their rent, uh, rather than being evicted, they might go to the community welfare officer and ask for the money as a loan, is it? No, it's not normally if they can't pay their rent. For example, say, if the difference between the HAP, they would go the HAP, what the HAP is paying and their rent, they would go to the community welfare officer to see if they could pay some of what, make up the difference that what they can afford them and you know, particularly in, in line with the way prices, rental prices, the cost of property. But from a social welfare, welfare perspective, it's um, to do with, as I said, people waiting on payments, mm. you know, when they've no money and they're in a crisis situation. But they do that, but they uh, top up your half payment every month indefinitely. No, no, no. If Primarily, as I said, if people mm. couldn't afford the deposit that was asked or if they needed some assistance if the HAP, say for example, you know, a, a house was 1100 a month and HAP was giving them X and they couldn't afford, they would go to ask to see, there's no guarantee that they would get it. Mm. You know, the community welfare officer might refer them back to the council to see if they could get an increase in their HAP. Mm. Um, that's only a development of well, if it was latter 11, years it was, because of the okay. cost of, um, because of the, the spiralling costs of rent of mm. you know rental properties but if it was 1100 a month they'd get about, about a, a thousand from HAP wouldn't they no not necessarily it depends on the particular situation you know and how many mm. people there is you know in the family um, but you'll find more and more that the average house price is between a thousand and upwards of 1400 mm. a month you know so HAP will pay a certain amount and the other person would have to pay the differ mm. but um, they would but, go but, but the, the HAP payment is the social welfare payment would the community welfare officer well, authorise more officer, money on top of the HAP payment? Well I'm very very often in dire situations and this is the point the community welfare officer is usually your last resort when you're in a crisis situation you know and if you fear that mm. um, if, the, if the landlord suddenly put up the rent and they had their HAP but they couldn't meet the additional payments they would go to the community welfare officer to see if 
if they could be assisted. And they would, they'd authorise that extra payment on top of the HAP payment, which is on already well. Sometimes they would come to their assistance, sometimes mm. they wouldn't. Sometimes Indefinitely. They'd refer them back to the, sometimes they would refer them back to the council to okay. see if they could up. Mm. The half payment. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm genuinely yeah. surprised by that. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. I know that there's many reasons people will go to the community yeah. welfare officer. Uh, perhaps uh, there's a, a bill that has come in all of a sudden, or something happens, yeah. uh, or maybe for for assistance with, um, you know, funeral costs or that sort of mm. thing. It's normally as a last resort, um, you know, or people that their payments have been stopped or their payments haven't come through, and they're living from week to week, and mm. they literally have no money. So that service has been there. And for decades, there's always been a community welfare officer. And it's it's one individual who acts as the officer, is it, for Mid-Louth? Yes, yes. Uh, And that person has retired. There was an office. That um, community Mm. welfare officer retired there um, last month. Mm. So what what, what do people do now? Well, that's the problem. They're being told to go to Drogheda. There was this problem this this time last year, actually, where the Dunlear office was closed down and at the time um, people raised concern or the, the community welfare officer used to work out at the the HSE building in Dunlear and uh, the, the, the community officer was removed at the time um, the minister had said it was uh, the, the, the service I had raised concerns about it and at the time she had said that I must have been misinformed that the service hadn't been closed down but that the problem was with they were operating um, their community welfare service from a HSE building, an office building that was no longer fit for purpose. But what she distinctly said at the time, and I, I'm almost sure it's on an LMFM podcast, mm-hmm. that people would be redirected temporarily until uh, they find another premises to use locally in Dunlear, and that never materialised. And now we have the community welfare officer in RD retiring and there was no um, there's no plans that we know of and that's why I had posed the question to her if she'd make a statement on it to outline our plans because the fear is that if there was nobody appointed you know or no they, they hadn't researched or resourced a community welfare officer to replace and appointed someone in that position that it's now been removed again from RD as well as Dunlear, so it looks like they're, you know, they're stripping mm. away services from rural parts of the. So country. can you ring up the office in Drogheda and say I'm in trouble, and uh, they can uh, assess whether you'd have to go to the office in Drogheda now. At the time, you the can't do it by phone, no. You could, you could phone, but generally, mm. if you have to get, if you have to meet with them, you know, which is generally mm. the case, if you have to sit down and, and plead your case or whatever, you have to arrange an appointment, so people would have to to travel, you know, um, to, to Drogheda. And these are people who are in a crisis situation that just wouldn't have that money, you mm. know. Um, at the time, um, for the best of my recollection, Minister Doherty had said if there was someone that couldn't, this is last year about Dunlear, if there was someone that couldn't um, travel due to sickness or mm. something, that they would arrange for somebody mm. to call out, you know. But, um, I mean, if you're depending... On yeah. that, I mean, the, the reality... But there would be very few started. people that would be in that situation and fewer of them that wouldn't be able to travel. And yeah, I'm but, sure yeah. most would be able to get the bus. Well, I mean, again, if you're if you're going to community welfare office yeah, yeah, because but, you're in dire yeah. straits, well, you have a little bit of sympathy. None of us know, you know, when they, we find ourselves in that situation. Mm. Um, and, you know, to have to travel. But the reality is that mm. it appears, unless the minister comes out 
and says otherwise. Firstly, she hasn't delivered on the Dunlear office. But secondly, um, if she needs to outline our plans for RD. Mm. Okay. Because people are just left in a void. And you just wonder, is this part of a policy to strip away services from rural parts of the county? You well, know? yeah, I, I, I guess uh, there is uh, the chance that is uh, the case. Uh, and uh, I suppose... Uh, there may be a case for doing that uh, if there are so few people who find themselves in that situation, uh, as you say, uh, and few of them who can't travel uh, because it is a short distance and public transport would be relatively good, would it not? Well, yeah, if, yes, but I mean, again, it comes back down to if, if somebody hasn't the price of a carton of milk, mm. you know, how are they going to afford a bus fare? But the principal point is that these services should be available in rural parts of every county. Now, there's people living living in rural Ireland. RD is the third largest town in the county. And why should RD be left without a service? The same with Dunlear. If there was people coming, it'd be different if there was nobody attending and there was no need for clinics and they could justify that. Um, they could amalgamate them. But to have no service in the entire Midlouth area is wrong. Okay, well, it's uh, 25 past uh, 10 in Warren Point at the moment and uh, 25 past 9, I think, in Carlingford. Yes, yeah. The seasonal clock changes. Um, as you, you know already, everybody knows the, the European Parliament has, or the European Traffic Commission, the Transport Committee had voted to abolish the daylight savings. And at the time when that came before, uh, they are the the members of the the transport and the traffic commission are um, MEPs that had voted against it because it, they'd felt at the time that it, it just it shouldn't be an EU power to decide whether or not to abolish time change. But in particular, they were wary that it could lead to a situation with people living on the island of Ireland, you know, having a, a different time zone, particularly in relation to Brexit. Um, if you look at even examples, I think it was Pierre Stoherty who was saying uh, Lifford and Straban were basically the same town. There's just a bridge dividing them, Lifford and Donegal, Straban and Tyrone, that they would be on different time time zones, mm-hmm. you know, an hour ahead. But um, it's Well, that would be up to Stormont, would it not? Well, that, that's the problem, you see. And with Brexit, all, all bets are off. But... Um, the decision with the EU has now been made and it has to be um, ratified by the Parliament itself and then it'll be up to each individual member state as to mm. whether they choose to um, abolish summertime or, or wintertime daylight mm. saving time. Yeah, know, but so I, mean, it would, to, I mean, on the assumption that there would be an assembly, it wouldn't be up to Westminster, it would be up to Stormont, wouldn't it? No, it would be up to, to, to Westminster to decide. And I think it was last month... Um, a British government official had said that they had no intention of ending the practice. So that would create, you know, serious issues mm. either side of the border. But of course it would. So, so it wouldn't happen, would it? Well, the, I mean, you're depending, you're depending on now on, you know, um, neighbouring countries, I suppose, to, to talk to each other and to mm. go, to agree to go ahead with um, either going forward or going back, you know, to have some kind of uniformity. That's what you're... you're, you're hoping on, you know, and it'll depend if the overall majority vote, um, say, for example, if they vote in favour of axing winter time mm. um, and Britain decide to to keep keep it, you know, to keep 
uh, Greenwich Mean Time, I think it's, yeah, to keep mm-hmm. their times, then well, we have a serious problem. Well, we do, unless uh, it's different in the north and Northern Ireland uh, adopts European central time uh, as opposed to Greenwich Mean Time, if uh, we can differentiate uh, it by using those terms. Uh, But what you need is an assembly to begin with. uh, And this is how the people of Northern Ireland continue to be failed by the politicians of Northern Ireland, isn't it? No, this will be decided in Westminster first and foremost. And I've said it to you before, as of many Sinn Féin reps. Well, they're not going to ignore in London what they're saying in Belfast. If they're saying that we can't do business in Belfast... They they, they ignored them when the majority voted to remain. They've ignored the majority of people in the six counties at that stage too, one of the most important things. But we've said, we're blue in the face Mm. now, that it's a rights issue. And that's why Stormont, and until the unionist, the unionist representatives in particular, the hardline DUP, recognise that power sharing is based on rights and equality, you know, and the onus is on them. And as you know, there's, there's no rush in them to do it. But we're certainly not going to renege on promises that we gave um, the people that voted for us, you know, and that was equality around and rights around language, women's rights, all, all the rights that the DUP just, you know, it sticks in their craw to, to even say the word equality. Equality, you know, it, it's just mm. not on their the radar. Like well, uh, and that's what power sharing should be about. Uh, according to the outgoing Chief Constable, Sinn Féin has no credibility in terms of the claims it makes in relation to equality and other issues for that matter because of the comments Mary Lou Macdonald made. In relation to, sorry, the... The, the appointment the, of uh, the next Chief Constable. Well, she just said that there was nobody there that she could, that stood out to her. Yes, and you heard what the outgoing Chief Constable said. Uh, this is a party that claims to stand for uh, equality uh, and uh, non-partisan uh, policing and politics and so on. And we more or less said you're hypocrites. No, no, well, I mean, <laughs> that's his opinion. We do stand for all of that. Um, and, there, I mean, unless he's trying to whitewash the entire history, there's been a serious... Um, you know, history there with um, from the former RUC and the PSNI, and she just gave an honest opinion that there's nobody jumps out at her that she would have a hundred percent confidence in. Mm. Do you, because of all of the, do, all of all that went on. Do, do, do you feel trouble brewing in in the north and further afield at the stage uh, when we think of uh, the car bomb in Derry? Uh, we hear unionists talking about Irish Navy warships with seventy six millimeter guns. Uh, impounding trawlers in Dundalk Bay and uh, then we learn of uh, these letter bombs arriving in London. I saw that this morning all right, yeah, yeah. It is um, a worrying development all right Um, and it's, you know, at this stage it serves no purpose. We're right in the thick of the Brexit and nobody knows which way it's, it's going to go and we're fighting to get the best deal for Ireland if it is a hard Brexit, you know, so it, it doesn't serve any purpose, but it's certainly um, a worrying development. Mm. Semtex up to coolies, mortar tubes up to coolies, guns. You see, it's the prospect of having a hard border reinstated on our island, you know, and I'm not, mm. that's, that's what's fueling this. You know, we've made it abundantly clear. Mm. Nobody wants to go back to having that sort of um, infrastructure at our our borders, you know, I would often go up to Sleeve Gullion Park mm. um, 
regularly now the thoughts of even you know we all remember the hard border being stopped being checked your car boot all of that yeah. we've come too far and the peace process is too valuable mm. and the Good Friday Agreement the, uh, is the atta- to protect the, the, all the citizens of Ireland the, and that's the attacks on the post, uh, I was uh, reading uh, some man uh, in the paper today saying uh, that uh, the first customs officer to appear on, on the border will have his head blown off. Oh, well, I mean, where, sorry, where was that? Where did you see? I didn't see that. It was uh, an article in one of the papers, uh, not saying that uh, it, it should happen, but that was how somebody felt it, it would be responded to. Well, that's, I mean, I didn't see that and I didn't, and, you know, no one would... Nobody would agree with that at all, you know, but uh, that's why it's up to both the EU to ensure and the Irish government to ensure that there's never, ever a hard border on this island again. You know, we've come too far for that. There's too much. It's the peace that's at at risk, you know, and mm. that's that's where this is coming from, you know, but we never, ever want to go back to that. You know, it, I remember even as a, a child being on a bus, with my mother one time and my brother and soldiers stopping the bus. And I remember, I think I was only about 13 or 14, the anger inside me. You know, even at that age of seeing somebody in a foreign uniform with a foreign accent getting onto the bus with guns and asking people, you know, their their names and addresses in my own country. You know, I remember that vividly at the at the time. And that's that's the feeling that it, it um, brings about, the thoughts of such a retrograde, detrimental effect that could have on the peace process. And that's the fear that's out there. All right, I have to leave there. Look, thanks uh, for joining us as always. Sinn Féin okay, TD for Louth and Elder Munster. Michael Reed on LMFM. 85 play centres, pat farms, multi-activity centres and playgrounds met yesterday to form a new group called Play and Activity Ireland to tackle what they say are unsustainable insurance costs. And this new group is a part of the Alliance for Insurance Reform, which has almost 700,000 members. Linda Murray is a spokesperson for the new group Play and Activity Ireland and a director of the board of uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform. She's on the line. Good morning to you, Linda, and thanks Good morning. for joining Good us. Good morning, here. Michael. Thanks very much for having me You're on. You're very How welcome. You? Perhaps uh, you'd put this uh, into context uh, for us uh, by talking about your own experience uh, and rather than talking about the group, which we can talk about in a, a moment, because uh, you own Huckleberry's Den in Navan, uh, and you set up six years ago. Maybe you tell us what you were paying for insurance, Dan. Sure, no problem. So um, I set up Huckleberry's Den uh, six years ago in Navan, um, there was a need for a soft play centre at the time um, and um, we set up a, a wonderful business with amazing staff and it's a great place for kids to come and I was paying around two and a half well I was paying exactly two and a half thousand euro in insurance six years ago and it doubled to four thousand the following year and off I went my insurance rose a bit like you say in bolts uh, in, in it when he's running um, I went up to sixteen and a half thousand euro last year and this year I've been refused insurance On what basis? Um, I suppose what the um, company in the UK, basically all leisure businesses in Ireland and play centres only have the UK to go to for insurance. It's been a very, very long time since anyone was able to get insurance in Ireland in the leisure industry. And what they've said is, is that Ireland is just unsustainable. Um, it's not profitable and um, we have uh, a high claims culture and they've no interest in insuring us. Um, so in my own personal case, um, I have two claims in the last five years. Um, 
obviously um, I haven't been negligent in either of these two claims um, and my but and, and unfortunately as well that doesn't really matter in a, mm. in, a lot of, in a lot of cases and I've been in refused insurance and at this present moment in time in Navan um, another play centre Lolo Town closed four weeks ago um, mostly because of insurance as well um, if I close in a couple of months which is highly likely um, there's going to be absolutely nowhere for kids to go and play inside on a rainy day like today to have their birthdays um, there's nowhere for kids under the age of 6 to go if I go um, we saw yesterday in the Irish Independent that um, we're, uh, we have a, a huge obesity epidemic with children um, or one of the highest in Europe only 19% of all kids are now getting the recommended daily exercise my place offers that type of exercise and I can't get insurance 16,500 euros a, a lot of money what would you need to do or is it possible to meet that cost I took out a personal loan for that last year so I've been paying it back on a weekly basis and it'll be paid back exactly when my insurance is up um, this year but I don't have insurance to continue at this present moment in time so I'm still fighting mm. for it I'm still hope that's why I'm doing what I'm doing Michael um, mm. I um, I suppose when I was forced to pay 16,500 euros last year that was an increase up from 8,000 and bear in mind that there was no new claim or anything in that mm-hmm. period. It just went from eight to sixteen and a half thousand. Um, I, and I suppose re- that's a little bit like motor insurance, where people are complaining that their premiums have increased by a third, but they haven't taken any claims in twenty, thirty, forty years. Oh, that's the exactly what's been. happening here. Mm-hmm. Like we have another place center in County Meath. Um, she's come out herself um, in the media, and she was paying six thousand euro last year in insurance. She's open eleven years, has never had one claim in her eleven years. She's very lucky, and her premium this year is sixteen thousand. In what world is insurance going from 6,000 to 16,000 okay? Uh, it's not okay. It's not okay for business. I mean, we're used to getting yeah. electricity and energy um, costs rising by 2% and 5% and 10% over time. But for something to increase by 100, 200, 300%, our play centres as a group have received increases of 585% in five years. Yeah. Well, to go from two and a half thousand to sixteen and a half thousand uh, is beyond belief. I think by most people's standards, uh, you're talking about uh, seven, eight times uh, as much in uh, that period of uh, six years. Exactly, uh, and that's but, but, why we've kind of gone. Um, I suppose I then, I suppose, started contacting play centres, mm-hmm. and um, we formed a group, um, Play and Activity Ireland. Um, it's risen to 95 people in it, 85 businesses, um, and we had our first meeting in Tullamore, as you mentioned. And um, I, I genuinely thought I'd probably get about 30 businesses to the meeting, but mm. I had to go back to the hotel within a half an hour and say we need a bigger room. Okay, but 55 people at it. But just explain to me, Linda, can yeah. you operate without insurance? I gather that despite yeah. the huge costs that you yeah. paid last year and how you took out a personal loan, your business was sustainable uh, and that you were able to operate and operate at some level of profit despite paying out that amount of money mm-hmm. uh, but now you can't get insurance can you operate without insurance? It's not worth the risk not with the way our culture is at the moment no um, I mean uh, in play centres I mean Michael what, what we're seeing uh, quite regularly is yeah, parents um, who are coming in with children and they're not supervising them properly um, a, char- a parent or a child might have a bang and I'm talking about like a bruised arm a bruised leg a bruised head a bruised anything and they're getting high rewards for this 
Um, and that's just not, we just can't keep going like that. I mean, years ago, as I said myself as a child, I'd be lucky if mum had a plaster when I came in after falling outside. Obviously, if a play centre is negligent, if something has happened with their slide, if a screw is sticking out, if a chair has broken, if some part of what a child is playing on isn't to the quality that it should be, then absolutely your child gets an injury. That's what insurance is there for. Mm. But where a child runs into another and bangs their head or bangs their head off a slide or bangs their head off something um, and they don't need any further investigation and they don't need any hospitalisation and there's no injury, mm. why would you consider claiming off the business? Because believe me, you might just think well, because you insured. Can. The answer is very simple because yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the answer is because you can and you will get that money. The answer is why can you? Uh, and this has led to a situation where children aren't allowed to run in schoolyards in this country. It led to a situation in Carlo where a playground had to close, uh, which got a, a lot of national attention and was overturned. Yep. Uh, and it led to a situation uh, on a Ash Wednesday. It's uh, timely that we're talking to you okay. today on Ash yeah. Wednesday, yeah. where a child got ashes on their forehead mm-hmm. uh, and the parents sued because the ashes were still there 24 hours later yeah. uh, and uh, the parents said well the child was being bullied and intimidated because uh, of uh, the religious symbol that they wanted him to participate in. Exactly I mean mm-hmm. what type of society and if I remember correctly that child got 5,000 uh, or the parents of that child for him got 5,000. What society are we living in that we can allow those things to happen and this is why I've met with Minister Darcy three times. It's why we are lobbying the Department of Finance and the Department of Justice to just sit in a room together. My goodness sit in a room together and sort this out. We need the book a quantum down and um, we need clarity on claims that are being paid out and we need the duty of care sorted out what that means is in a lot of these instances where a child um, injures themselves to no fault of the centre the duty of care has to be established the duty of care is with the parent who's there supervising the child the duty of care is not with the centre where they haven't been negligent and it's very important that that's sorted out because otherwise all these little injuries. Thank God, now, Michael, there's plenty of mm. people out there who wouldn't consider doing this. I'd have, I'd, I've had 120,000 people in the centre in the last six years. I think most of us wouldn't think of it. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. Think <laughs> wouldn't. I, 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 maybe maybe we would do. Maybe we would do it if we thought we could get thousands out of it, but we wouldn't think of it because it's just so ridiculous to think that you go to a play centre and fall and bruise your arm and that you can claim off uh, the uh, public liability insurance. Uh, but uh, we do hear of claims, let's say, for 50 or 20,000 for yeah. whiplash. That's yeah. uh, something that people will yeah. be very familiar with. Uh, and that's kind of the standard payment in this country. And that's what the book of quantum that you mentioned a moment ago is about. That sort of sets the standard. Exactly, yeah. And when uh, there's an injury, uh, I suppose when judges are adjudicating, they look at that or juries are adjudicating, they look at that uh, and that's how the claims are awarded. So you're well, saying that that needs to be addressed, is it? Michael, they're not even getting there. Only 6% of all claims are getting to court. Mm, yeah. So um, I, I'd love if a judge could look at a few of these because maybe we might get a few more thrown out. Well, they're settled on the steps, aren't they? Exactly, they're settled Mm -hmm. because insurance companies look at them and go, okay, um, we'll pay X amount to such and such and it's probably cheaper to do that than bring this whole thing to court. So there's a few black holes somewhere between insurance and um, legal side of things and it's us businesses and us small businesses who represent... And 900,000 people minimum in the workforce in Ireland and we mm. need to get this sorted out because okay. we're not going to be surviving otherwise. Well, you're one of 85 centres. Uh, you represent uh, an alliance of uh, about 7,000 people uh, who are looking for insurance uh, claims uh, to be reduced and premiums to be reduced as a, a result. Uh, but your insurance uh, at your own centre is about to run out. Uh, how long have you got? I have, a, I have two months left. All right, and then what? Um, and then, um, unfortunately, I have no tricks up my sleeve. 
Okay. Um, I'm still, Michael, I'm not even thinking like that. And mm. my staff have been amazing and I've been very open with them about the whole thing. And it's very sad. Like, I mean, I've got staff that have mortgages. I've got a lot of people that are in college and that's how they pay their college fees. Mm. They don't have someone else to pay their college fees and they're paying it themselves. I need to stay open. Um, and I'm hoping that by even talking to you now that people who maybe are would ever consider putting a claim into a company where they're not negligent, please don't do it because you might think we have insurance and yes we do, but it affects us big time. The insurance companies have to get their money. So they put the premiums on us year on year if you've made a claim. That's what happens. It's not that it's just we pay a little amount and a lot gets paid out. We have to pay that back. And in some instances, instances like mine, they refuse you insurance. And that's what's happening. I have one centre um, come up to me at the meeting um, last week, a lovely couple with a couple of young kids, and they were paying €6,000 in insurance last year, never had a claim, 18000 this year. Oh my God. We just, yeah. we, just, we just can't keep going. And Michael, the scary part as well is I'm talking about play centres. This is reflecting now in um, sports and in gyms and in um, dance classes. I had a soccer club bring me yesterday. Now, it's a commercial soccer club, and they said, we can't get insurance. I had a claim in 2015. One in 10 years, I can't get it. Can't go and play soccer. My own girls go to gymnastics and um, the guy said to me last week, can you pay an extra tenner there for, for insurance? And I said, oh really, it's extra. And they said, we're down to our last insurer. I don't know if we're going to be here in a year or two. If I think I can't even send my kids to gymnastics, what is happening? This has to stop. Michael Darcy, Minister Michael Darcy, Minister Charlie Flanagan needs to sort this out or there'll be nowhere for young kids to go and play and do sports. And they'll all be sitting at iPads and televisions and not getting their daily exercise. All right. Terrible. Linda, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us for the you. moment and thank you very much as well. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Linda Murray, spokesperson for a new group called Play and Activity Ireland, is a director of the board of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the latest unemployment uh, figures. Uh, This news is far better than the type of news that we've talked about in recent years. We had at one stage been talking about an unemployment rate of about 16%, but that was almost seven years ago. The latest figures from the CSO say unemployment is at 5.6% in this country today. John Stewart, coordinator with the INOU, the Irish National organisation for the unemployed is on the line and it really has been some turnaround John hasn't it? Yeah good morning Michael and thanks for inviting me on yes it has been a phenomenal turnaround really when you consider you mentioned there uh, back uh, seven years ago thereabouts um, when we were on and we were talking about unemployment figures significantly uh, greater than the figures that we have uh, today both percentage wise and in terms of numbers um, and I suppose the really significant aspect of the current uh, unemployment statistics it has been the reduction in long-term unemployment, um, and, and that's been really significant. So, yeah, o- overall, a, a much more positive picture, um, but never get complacent, I would say, mm. because things, unfortunately, as we found out over 10 years ago, can change very, very quickly. And what might seem to be a pretty healthy economic situation Uh, as we know and many people know to their cost, uh, became a disastrous situation uh, and people lost their jobs in their tens of thousands and obviously equal numbers uh, decided to emigrate as well. So Mm -hmm. I I think there's no room for complacency, Michael, Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly the figures have been going in the right direction uh, and hopefully they'll continue to do so. Obviously Brexit is the potential 
big fly in the ointment and it's difficult, obviously, clearly to predict what the outcome of all of that might be at this stage. Are you surprised, John, at uh, the progress in bringing down the number of long-term unemployed? Uh, a long-term unemployed person is somebody who's been out of work for a year or more. Uh, but quite often they're referred to the job path scheme and uh, there's been a lot of criticism of some of uh, the companies involved and uh, Sinn Féin Motion uh, has called uh, for people to stop being referred to one of uh, the schemes because 9% of those who had been referred uh, secured employment that lasted more than a year uh, but this amounted to a cost of 3718 euro per person uh, and we were obviously talking about 91% of people who didn't. Yeah, and uh, just in terms of your reference there to, to job path, and uh, I suppose that's had, I suppose, mixed reviews, um, and certainly we would have picked up through the work that we do here uh, instances of people who uh, were not, I suppose, particularly happy with uh, being referred to, to the job path providers uh, and uh, some of their experiences. And equally as well, Michael, we would have uh, picked up from feedback and work we've been doing, um, you know, mm from people who, who actually had the opposite uh, experience as well, where they found that the, the service that was provided to them uh, seemed to work for them. Uh, and I think there is an issue in terms of how people are referred to employment services generally. Um, job path service, I would say, is clearly one that the closer you are to the labour market, uh, the, the greater maybe the potential that that service might be able to support and assist you. Uh, there are a range of other services as well that support people who are long-term unemployed, obviously the local employment service. So going back to your original mm. question, am I surprised at how quickly the numbers of people who are previously long-term unemployed uh, have gone back to work? Uh, I would say no, I'm not, uh, because uh, we've always said this, that mm. the issue really is, is one of jobs. Um, and, and if people aren't getting jobs, employers weren't, pardon? if people aren't getting jobs, there are questions to be asked. If we refer uh, close on uh, 17,000, a little over 17,000 people to these schemes, uh, and we spend €149 million Euro doing so, and less than 10% get a, a job, uh, there are questions to be asked, aren't there? Yeah, I think the, the, the problem there in terms of job path, Michael, is that we haven't yet seen a proper evaluation in terms of the extent to which the scheme is either working or not working. Uh, and I think that's something that's ongoing at the moment, and it'll be really interesting and important to see that uh, so that we have a proper set of statistics to look at and we'll have a good understanding. The job path service uh, rolled out in 2015. Um, uh, the contract, as is currently structured, uh, actually uh, will result in... Um, no further referrals by the end of this year. Um, so clearly, in terms of going forward, there's a job of work to the for the department now in terms of what 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 future shape mm. uh, and form the employment services are going to take. And I know that that's obviously something that the department are currently examining. It's one that we're very concerned about because we would be very, very anxious that uh, employment services are fit for purpose, uh, that the ones that actively support the unemployed person to, to, to get work, but also that there are employment services that are open to people more 
more generally. So people who are in employment who want to change jobs uh, and obviously people who may not be counted on the live register or on any unemployment statistics because they may not mm. be receiving a payment uh, and they should be able to access these types of services as well. So employment services, Michael, are absolutely critical, uh, both at a time of significant uh, employment opportunities and obviously critically as well at times of significantly high unemployment and low employment opportunities. Okay, well, um, So they have to be maintained and as I said, the decisions that the Department are going to make in this respect in terms of the period ahead are going to be very, very significant and very critical indeed for unemployed people. Okay, well, uh, a low unemployment rate today of 5.6% as we mentioned at the outset, which is uh, nice uh, compared uh, to what we have been talking about in recent years. John, I have to leave there for the moment. Thank you for joining us as always. John Stewart, coordinator with the INOU, the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed, brings our programme to its conclusion today and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.